A, we're going to be reading from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and that's on page 1144 of the black Bibles that are underneath the seats in front of you. So it's 1,144. And it's entitled, The Church and Its Leaders. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly. Mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready, for you are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? After what, after all, is Apollos? And what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose and they will each be rewarded according to their own labour. For we are co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation, Using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay or straw, their work will be known for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has built survives the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, yet yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through flames. 
don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you are that temple. Do not deceive yourselves. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. As it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So then no more boasting about human leaders. All are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours. And you are of Christ. And Christ is of God. Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing exceedingly well and in fine spirits. Get to work in just a moment. But did you know it was Bruce's birthday yesterday? It was. Very good. Yeah. It's his 11th year in his 40s. <laughs> Stupid joke that I'm going to be using all day. Okay, let's, um, let's pray and give thanks for Bruce and pray about this passage and we'll get straight to work. Heavenly Father, thank you for Bruce, our senior minister. I want to thank you for the way you have shaped him by your gospel into the man that he is. I also want to thank you for his service to us. Uh, thank you for the way he brings the gospel to bear upon our lives and upon the life of our church. Uh, and so I pray you continue to bless him and Kath and their family. And Lord, bless us this morning as we consider these words from 1 Corinthians chapter 3 so that they might be a blessing not just to our ears or our minds, but to our hearts and then to our lives. We might accordingly bring praise and honor to your name. Amen. Uh, I don't know if you're one of those people who quite enjoys getting junk mail in your letterbox. Some people hate it, right? I understand that. Uh, Put little signs above their letterbox, no junk mail, please, with an exclamation mark. And that might be you. But it's not me. I I like getting junk mail. I especially like getting junk mail from JB Hi-Fi. I like looking through the catalogs, seeing all the new stuff that is on offer and that's available. And I know, like I recognize that uh, catalogs are designed to make you go shopping um, but I think they save me from going shopping because I can see everything that I've got to sell and I feel like I've kind of been shopping, but all from the comfort of my own home and then I don't need to go out. It's great. And so I quite like getting junk mail. But uh, in my line of work, you do get the occasional pieces of junk mail that's pretty odd. So I used to get letters from this prophet of doom from North Queensland, which, you know, right there, that's entirely appropriate. And he thought that, Barack Obama was the beast from the book of Revelation. And uh, when I was back doing youth ministry, I I remember uh, I once got a flyer from an inflatable jumping castle business, and they were promoting a giant inflatable saber-toothed tiger slide that looks like this. And the caption on the flyer said, this is true, right? It said, make your youth group a success. 
And so I was, you know, exceedingly grateful for that flyer. I thought, why bother persisting with the hard work of, you know, teaching the scriptures and trying to disciple young people when I can go straight to the giant inflatable saber-toothed tiger slide? I mean, it was so obvious. I wondered why I hadn't thought of it myself earlier. And then I remembered the bit in the Bible that talks about working with, you know, inflatable prehistoric animals in the book of nothing, chapter nowhere. But, you know, it did make me think, what really is the church? What's it really about? How do we build or grow the church? And kind of a subset of that question is, what are church leaders or ministers really, whether they're paid or whether they're volunteers? You know, what are they when it all boils down to it? What is the church in its essence? And I think these questions are worth thinking about for us all, even if you're not yet a Christian, because a key part of being a Christian is being involved in a church, and that can be off-putting, I, I understand that, to people who are just investigating the Christian faith. But you see, this chapter will help us to catch just a glimpse of God's vision for his alternative community, and I would love us all to see that. And we uh, also need to know more about ministers or church workers, church leaders, because they are just part and parcel of church life, aren't they? And they tend to be either idolized or despised, and we'll see if either of those reactions are appropriate. So what is the church, and what are church leaders really? That's the question for today. Next week, Dave Hanbury will help us think through what we are to look for in our leaders, but what is the church, and what are its leaders? And if you haven't been with us, we're in our fourth week in this series we've called Imperfect Church. It's a look at the New Testament letter of 1 Corinthians, and this book has just consistently pushed us to think Christianly, counterculturally, when it comes to the Christian faith. You see, it might be cultural, that is, humanly wise, to divide over which leader you like or prefer, but as Christians, we've seen that we need to unite over the gospel instead. It might be cultural to look for a humanly impressive message, but although the gospel, the message of the cross about Jesus, looks foolish humanly, It actually is the power of God to save people. Last week we saw that our culture holds up various things as wise, but true wisdom is to understand all that God has done for us in the good news about Jesus. And that's only revealed to us by His Spirit, not by human wisdom. So that was last week. But today, how do we think of church? How do we think of church leaders in a distinctively Christian rather than worldly way? And the first thing that we need to say today is that the church is God's field, God's building, God's temple. And um, if you didn't pick it up in the reading as Glennis read it, there's plenty of metaphors today. The church is God's field, his building, his temple. And so in verse 9, you can see there in your Bibles, if you have them open, it's described the church as a field. And that's really because God, uh, sorry, the Apostle Paul has been working with this metaphor of gardening or farming when he's described church leaders such as himself and Apollos. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of attacking things a little bit back to front. and We'll get to the church workers in a bit. But one of the things that describing, God, describing the church as God's field does is it reminds us that it grows. Very clear in the life of the Corinthian church, Paul planted the seed, meaning that he first preached the gospel to them, on one of his missionary journeys that you can read about in Acts chapter 18. And he set up the church there. And then Apollos watered. In other words, he came along later and he ministered the word of God to the Corinthians. Verse 6, ultimately God is the one who made the church grow. And it tells you that the church is a growing thing. 
It's not a static thing. We ought to be changing, sure, but we ought to be looking to grow, seeking to grow. And this can be a challenge, I think, for those of us who have been in church for a while because we just get used to the way things are. And we get used to the people who are already here. And we easily forget those who aren't yet with us and what might need to be shaken up so that some of those who aren't yet with us might join us in order that we might grow. This is one of the reasons why I'm just so keen for our home groups to be open because we want to have more people grow. We want to have more people that are growing. And if you do find yourself a little bit resistant to that idea, you find yourself reacting to change so that we might grow, it's very helpful to be reminded that the church is God's field. doesn't belong to staff or parish council. doesn't belong to those who've been coming for 20 years, those who've contributed lots of money, or even those who serve tirelessly. The church is God's field, and he wants it to grow. Still in verse 9, though, the Apostle Paul switches metaphors. So have a look there. And he describes the Corinthian church as God's building. And buildings are something that we typically associate with churches, aren't they? I think I shared before uh, how we used to live in London, which is a great place to live. And if you've ever lived in a foreign place, or if you're actually not Australian and right now you're living in a foreign place... um, And somebody who's never been there comes to visit. It's very special because you get to observe them discovering all the fantastic things about this place that you yourself have discovered only recently. You almost get to watch them fall in love with a place. It's very nice to be able to do that. So uh, when my mum visited us for the very first time in London, we caught the train from our place, which is in this, um, frankly, festy kind of urban dive in the northwest, and uh, right down into Westminster Station, the very centre of town. And if um, you take the right exit out of Westminster Station, you walk almost straight into Big Ben. Like, it's as far away as that door is from me, from the uh, exit to the station. And so I thought, I'll do that for Mum. And so we did that, and you know, we walk out of the exit, and the jaw just kind of drops, because there's Big Ben right there. I mean, it was one of those things where we almost had to kind of scrape it off the footpath. You know, she was just in awe. And buildings and structures can have that effect on people, can't they? I mean, it got ridiculous in the case of my mum because we'd be waiting for a bus and she'd just be like gazing at a post box, transfixed at it, like it was amazing, or uh, even a rubbish bin. And I think, mum, something's gone wrong when you start to think that post boxes or rubbish bins are items of, items of splendour. That's just my mum. Of course, there's something about religious buildings uh, in particular that can inspire and lift people up. Uh, We would get dozens of visitors every week at St. Matthew's because of the building. But When the Apostle Paul talks about the church or the Corinthian Christians being God's building, it's a metaphor, right? It's just like the field metaphor. It's not talking about the bricks and the mortar. He's not talking about institutions or traditions like the Anglican Church or the Roman Catholic Church. He's talking about the collection of God's people who gather together. And it is clear that we require building that is this side of heaven we are a work in progress we're an unfinished project in need of further building and the apostle paul does not only describe the corinthian christians the corinthian church or even us as god's building if you have a look a look later on in verse 16 he describes us as god's temple very special kind of building so let's read verses 16 and 17 
The Apostle Paul says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred. You are that temple. You see, the Corinthian Christians back then and us today together are God's temple. You might know that in the Old Testament, the temple in Jerusalem was the very focal point of religious life. Actually, the communal life of God's people. It was where they went to celebrate the festivals. It was where they went to offer their sacrifices and plead for forgiveness. And although heaven and earth cannot contain God, the temple was the place where the presence of God dwelled. It was the place where he showed himself to his people in a special way, right in amongst them, although still separate to a degree. But you know, on this side of the cross, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, God does not dwell with his people in a structure or a construction. He dwells with his people by his spirit. And not just individually, right? Chapter 3 reminds us that God dwells within the community of his people together. This means we are God's temple, where God's spirit lives. And that means we are precious and sacred to God. He's fiercely protective of us as the community of his people. And he's not going to let anyone destroy this community, whether that's a church leader or a church member or anyone, and just get away with it. So this means that if you're tempted to think of church as either a building or as an institution or a tradition or even just a collection of services, or you're tempted to think that church has very little relevance to your Christian life, you don't really need to belong to a church, then you're actually badly misguided and something needs to change. You know, your kid's sporting team, God's spirit doesn't dwell there. Your busy social calendar, God's spirit doesn't dwell there. But this passage reminds us that we are God's field needing to grow. We are God's building, a work in progress. And together we are God's temple. And His Spirit does dwell within us. And that means God values us as sacred and precious. And uh, really it's this background understanding of church that helps us to understand the second question for today of what are church leaders or ministers really? What are they? Well, Paul's got a very interesting answer to that question in verses 5 to 7. Have a look either in your Bibles or up here. What, after all, is Apollos, says Paul. And what is Paul? Kind of weird to be speaking of yourself in the third person, but lots of sportsmen do it. So what after all is Apollos and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you came to believe, as the Lord assigned to each his task. I, says Paul, planted the seed. Apollos watered it, but God's been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. And so secondly for today, we discover that church leaders are nothing and yet they're God's fellow workers. It's both humbling, you see, and um, very esteeming, I think. At one level, he says, church workers and leaders are nothing. Neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything. Certainly not to be idolized, not to be put up on a pedestal. Nothing special, because it's God who makes things grow. And you're thinking, that's what I've been saying all along, right? You minister guys are nothing. 
we should listen. But I actually think it's good for all of us to be reminded, especially if you're tempted to lift one of them up. He's my guy. I really like him. And put another one down. Oh, I don't think I can learn anything from him. I don't think I can hear anything from her. Then again, it's not quite nothing, is it? Church leaders, and let's think about that as broadly as we possibly can, are servants. Servants whom God uses to build his church and to help people together grow. Not quite nothing, because verse 9, the Apostle Paul calls himself and Apollos God's co-workers or fellow workers. And I just hope that is the most encouraging thing to any of us here who exercise any kind of leadership of God's people. Whether you're a small group leader, um, you're in kids' church or a youth leader, or you're one of the open door folks who are just kind of sowing the seeds of the gospel in the hearts and minds of our many visitors, whatever it is. On the one hand, nothing. Because it's God who makes things grow. And that should be very humbling. Especially if you think you're particularly gifted and talented in ministry. But on the other hand, it ought to be just, uh, you know, the most esteeming thing imaginable to be considered a fellow worker of God, farming in his field, laboring on his building, serving in his temple, the church of his people. This uh, whole building metaphor has kind of been confused over the years. Some people think it's talking about building your own individual Christian life, but it's not. Some people think the bit about um, people escaping as like one through the flames is answering a theological debate about whether you can lose your salvation, but it isn't answering that debate. Some people have seen this passage as evidence of a Catholic doctrine of purgatory where a refining fire can burn off your sin after you die so you can eventually go to heaven, but it can't. The whole metaphor is not meant to be confusing. It's meant to be humbling, and it's meant to be esteeming. And it's meant to be sobering also, because just being on the team doesn't automatically mean you're doing quality work. Just being a church leader or a church worker or even somebody who kind of shows leadership in your family doesn't guarantee that your work is pleasing to God. The position doesn't equal quality work. And let's see what this looks like visibly. Let's start off by thinking, what's wrong with this picture here? (laughs) Don't you think somebody might have spotted that something was wrong before it got to this stage? I think so. What about this? Great view from the balcony, don't you reckon? especially of the train, which is about to plough right through it at 100 miles an hour. Then again, I guess uh, balconies can be tricky things sometimes, can't they? Well, let's go inside. Uh, Some of you will have been used to doing renovations, bathroom renovations. I personally think that eye contact is just never really a key theme when it comes to bathroom renovations. (laughs) I really think there are just some things that you must do on your own. You get the point, of course. (laughs) Just because you're a builder, right, it doesn't mean that you do quality work. So what does quality work look like for anyone who's charged with the responsibility of working on God's field, God's building, God's temple? Well, the Apostle Paul lays it out very plainly to the Corinthians. He planted the seed, 
or he laid the foundation, as it says in verse 10, as an expert or a master builder, quite literally a wise builder, laying down the foundation of Jesus Christ. That is the life and the message of the gospel. Great. We've already seen that in 1 Corinthians. But now you've founded a church on the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of Jesus Christ and him crucified. Can you just build with whatever you like? Is the giant inflatable saber-toothed tiger slide a legitimate material for ministry success? And you're thinking, well, Scott, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? Well, I don't know. Like, I got the leaflet through my letterbox, didn't I? No, once the church is built upon the foundation of the gospel, church workers, anybody involved in Christian ministry, broadly construed, even if that's within our families, needs to build with quality materials. Materials that will stand the test of time. Materials that will stand the heat of judgment day. Gold, silver, and costly stones, not wood, hay, and straw. For verses 13 to 15, the work will be brought to light by the testing fire of judgment. And I was reading about this passage this week. You know, most of the commentators, I thought, chickened out at this point. And they just said there's a contrast between superior and inferior building materials. And they refused to nail down what they might actually be. But I thought, isn't it obvious What you start building with is what you keep building with, isn't it? What you found a church upon, the good news about the life and love of Jesus, is what you continue to build it with. You don't lay a gospel foundation and then build your church with a social justice program, although social justice might be a part of what you do. You don't lay down a foundation of the gospel, but then build a youth ministry with inflatable slides, or even just the vague idea of having fun. Even though you will have fun at youth group if you're building a community where the gospel and positive relationships are central. It's just the fun is going to be the byproduct, not the main game. If you start with the gospel, do you not continue to build by bringing the gospel to bear upon the lives of dearly loved people and its wonderful, colorful and inexhaustible breadth? What else can you do? What else can we as congregations look for from our leaders and our workers to build our church with? Technology? I love technology. Love the JB Hi-Fi catalog. Love the fact we've got microphones so I don't have to yell myself hoarse. But technology is a servant to us. Technology is not a primary building materials. What about a social agenda? Well, that could be an important part of the mix, but it's not a main building material. Celebrity pastors, they can help build churches, but almost as easily they destroy churches, so they can't be a a worthy building material. Business principles can guide how we use our resources and think about things, but they can't determine the nature of the work itself. Pop psychology and really a thinly veneered Christian self-help, well, that's tempting, but it's inappropriate. Even zeroing in on supplying you know, an emotional high from anthemic music and moving preaching is a potential pitfall. Although, don't hear me saying we're against emotion. We ought to be spirited, right? Joyful, the most spirited and the most joyful as we love God with our hearts and our minds and our strength. Do you know what a temptation for me is as I prepare to preach to think, what is the killer illustration? What's the funny anecdote? What is just the right illustration that will move people? rather than thinking, how can the Word of God do the work of God with these people I so dearly love? 
you notice that uh, none of these things are necessarily bad things or obviously bad things. But they're just not materials that will endure fire. Teaching the gospel, good news about Jesus. Learning from him. Singing the gospel together joyfully, spiritedly. Praying the gospel, bringing the gospel to bear upon our lives in all its riches, in all its depth, with generosity of spirit and integrity. That's what the Apostle Paul means, quality materials. Trusting in the wisdom of God, not putting our hopes in the wisdom of the world around us. So that's what our ministers and our leaders must do, that kind of building work. And when I said it's sobering, it really is. I mean, have a look at verse 15. If your work is burned up by the testing fire of judgment, you suffer loss. And the word picture in mind is you lose your wage. You lose the reward that seems to be on offer in verse 8 and verse 14. Even if we don't know precisely what that is. Perhaps you'll be saved like somebody jumping from a burning building. But if we take the whole chapter in mind, we can only say perhaps, because we've already seen that if the way you build actually destroys God's church, you'll be destroyed. So maybe it's not just a reward. It could even be an eternity that's at stake here. It's a very sobering thought for anyone who's involved in ministering to God's people. And if that's what our ministers and our leaders must do, that's what we as congregation members must want and desire and look for. Because you don't have to be a church leader to destroy a church. You see, this passage is not just a powerful corrective to any leader who trusts in the best of human wisdom at the expense of God's wisdom. It's also a forceful reminder to all church members not to reject that basic building work of applying the gospel, the good news about Jesus, the story of his life to people's lives, and not to use whatever power and influence you might have to insist that the church builds with something other than the gospel, even if it's a good thing. Careful building work is required, and that's what we should be looking for from our ministers. The real kind of sharp, pointy edge of this passage, the real presenting issue is still the Corinthians' habits of kind of dividing over their leaders, you know, which one they like the most, maybe idolizing this one and, despising this one. And it's likely that their boasting and their divisiveness is so serious that that's what the Apostle Paul has in mind when he talks about destroying God's temple. You know, it might seem humanly wise, but it's spiritually destructive. I mean, just hear how the Apostle Paul describes the Corinthians who've done just that in their divisiveness. Verse 1, you mere infants. Uh, Verse 1 and verse 3, still worldly. What a slap in the face to people who thought they really lived by the Spirit. Verse 3 and 4, are you not still mere humans? Verse 18, really he says you guys are self-deceived, you Corinthians. Ultimately in that last paragraph of the reading, very foolish. Because he says, why would you want to, you know, miserly, exclusively, claim possession of just this one leader. He's our guy. He belongs to us. We're for him. When as the church of God's people, we have possession of everything, all the leaders. The world, right? Life, the present, the future, they all belong to us because they all belong to Jesus and he belongs to God and God owns everything. 
So we do have to keep hearing that warning about divisions and we have to keep resisting the temptation to think that we're wise enough to inform God of whom he can minister to us through. Might he not teach us from unusual Christian sources if we've got ears to hear? More broadly though, this passage reminds us of how to think of our ministry leaders. Nothing special, as it's God who makes things grow, but also nothing less than God's co-workers. So not to be idolized, put on a pedestal, nor to be despised either, because God is working on his growing field. He's building his church through them. And even more broadly, this passage reminds us of how to think of the community of God's people that gather together, called the church. The church is where God's spirit lives, and it's an integral, not an optional part of the Christian life. And it means that we're precious and we're sacred, not the plaything of those with influence and power. And it's not just for insiders, because there's a clear expectation from God that it will grow. And it's not perfect, of course, because it's under construction, so there's going to be flaws and faults all over the place. It's a work in progress. And it can only be properly built with quality building materials, the gospel message and gospel integrity that's befitting of the life of Jesus. And if you can hold all of that together, which is quite a job, you can hold all of that together, you might just catch a corner of a glimpse of God's vision for his community, where we're heading as a work in progress, despite some fumbling attempts. And if you can do that, I think it really is a vision, don't you think? Don't you really want to be part of it? Of course, that glimpse doesn't just change leaders and what they do. It changes us, what we look for from them, what sort of ministry we expect them to do, because there's plenty of pressure. I mean, it's quite literally coming through the letterbox to trust in the wisdom of the world to do the work of God. But as we finish, if God will judge Christian workers on the single measure of their avoidance of human wisdom and brilliance and their devotion to the wisdom of the cross as they go about their work, let us give them every encouragement to do just that. I think that's the very thing that we should be pushing through their letterbox. And I'm going to lead us in prayer to God now to give him thanks for this reminder. Why don't you join me as we do that? Heavenly Father, we do want to thank you this morning for the reminder of what church really is. Your field, your building, your temple. As we gather together, there's something quite sacred and precious here where nothing, no one short of your Holy Spirit dwells. Lord, thank you for that reminder. And uh, thank you also for the reminder of who God's leaders are, church workers and leaders. In one sense, they're nothing in another sense, God's co-workers. So help us neither to idolize them nor to despise them, but to encourage them to do the gospel work in order to build a church that is pleasing and honoring to you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.